You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 269 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. At 8.50 on the morning of Sunday, May 3rd, 1863, Fighting Joe Hooker's Chief of Staff, Major General Daniel Butterfield, sent a telegram to Washington. It was a message for Abraham Lincoln, and it read, Though not directed or specially authorized to do so by General Hooker, I think it not improper that I should advise you that a battle is in progress. Butterfield's message to Lincoln is obviously one of the war's great understatements, since by that point a battle had been in progress at Chancellorsville for quite some time. Days earlier, Joe Hooker had proclaimed that his plans were perfect, Now, however, as he stood on the front porch of the Chancellor House on the morning of May 3rd, those perfect plans were unraveling before his eyes. Hooker had spent much of the morning riding his lines, encouraging his troops, keeping up their spirits, showing everyone why he was fighting Joe. And the Union soldiers responded with grim determination, matching charge with countercharge, and going toe-to-toe with the Confederates in savage fighting that would turn those hours after daybreak on May 3rd into the bloodiest morning of the entire Civil War, and the second bloodiest single day, second only to Antietam. One soldier wrote that at Chancellorsville, quote, bullets fell like raindrops in a summer shower. Hooker thought that withdrawing Sickles' Third Corps from Hazel Grove earlier and into a tighter defensive position had been a sound military decision, but that move proved to be one of his most fateful decisions of the campaign. Yet, oddly enough, Hooker never attempted to explain it. All he would say about it was, quote, The position I abandoned was one that I had held at a disadvantage. But now, from the front porch of the Chancellor House, as Hooker watched the ever-growing number of rebel artillery pieces deployed at Hazel Grove, trade blows with his own batteries at Fairview and in the Chancellorsville clearing, he began to realize the tide of battle had started to shift against him. That's because by setting up shop at Hazel Grove, Confederate artillery that would never have otherwise come into play because of the thick woods, instead had a perfect platform from which to bombard the federal position. 
and the Chancellor House was an all-too-tempting target for the Confederate artillery. Shortly after nine o'clock, a courier galloped up to the porch of the house with the message. Just as Hooker reached for it, a solid shot fired from a rebel cannon hit the column he was standing next to. The cannonball split the column lengthwise, throwing half of it violently against Hooker. The stunning blow to his head and right side of his body knocked him to the porch floor. As you guys will recall, in the last show, we said that Robert E. Lee's plans for May 3rd were simple. He would attack. Even though he was severely outnumbered and his forces split into three parts, he was determined to maintain the initiative by attacking the Federals at Chancellorsville. Stonewall Jackson's troops, now led by Jeb Stuart, would attack from the west, while the two divisions with Lee would attack from the east. The Federals, hard hit and off balance because of Stonewall Jackson's flank attack, had spent the night of May 2nd frantically reorganizing to be ready to stave off whatever the Confederates would throw at them on the 3rd. The new Union lines formed a loop around Chancellorsville, with Couch's 2nd Corps manning the area north of the Plank Road and Slocum's 12th Corps deployed to the south. Below Slocum's lines, a long, narrow salient manned by Sickles' Third Corps jutted southwestward to the high ground at Hazel Grove, about a mile from the Chancellor House. The Federal troops facing Jeb Stewart's forces were the westernmost units of Couch's and Slocum's Corps, and they had worked feverishly throughout the night to construct three lines of defense. They had chopped down trees and cut brush to form an abatis about 100 yards in front of rough log breastworks. Finally, on the boggy, wet ground at the foot of Fairview Heights, close by Chancellorsville, another wide belt of felled trees and cut brush had been laid down. The remaining Federal forces were deployed in the outline of a crude V, with its point resting on the top of the Chancellorsville defensive loop and its two sides stretching, one to the northwest and the other to the northeast, all the way to the Rappahannock. The Corps of Meade and Reynolds held the northwestern line, while Howard's battered 11th Corps manned the northeastern wing. Protected within these lines were the roads leading to U.S. Ford, which was the Federal's line of communication and supply across the river. The arrival of John Reynolds' First Corps during the night had brought Hooker's strength at Chancellorsville to 76,000 men. Lee had perhaps 43,000 men here, dangerously divided into two wings with the Federals in between them. Lee had taken a great gamble by dividing his forces, and now the tactical situation demanded a vigorous Federal counterattack to defeat the vulnerable rebel detachments in detail, that is, separately. Fighting Joe Hooker's elevation to Army command had been due, in no small part, to his reputation as an aggressive combat leader. But ever since first contact with the enemy in this campaign, Hooker had been thinking only of defense, and he showed no inclination to change that mindset now. The most he would do on the night of May 2nd was send word to 6th Corps commander John Sedgwick, 
who was still in his bridgehead below Fredericksburg. Hooker wanted Sedgwick to quickly push through the rebels defending the town and then rapidly march toward Chancellorsville and attack Lee's forces there in the rear. In other words, Hooker's plan for May 3rd was to hunker down with his 76,000 men at Chancellorsville and wait for Sedgwick's force of 23,000 to fight its way to his rescue. Okay. Well, having thus handed Sedgwick the responsibility and Lee the initiative, Hooker went on to give away another great advantage when he ordered Sickles to abandon Hazel Grove. As y'all know from last week's show, when Jeb Stewart launched his attack on Sunday morning, Sickles hadn't quite finished pulling his infantry back to a new line nearer the plank road and redeploying his artillery to Fairview. The combat quickly escalated as Stewart's assault easily pushed the remaining Yankees out of Hazel Grove, and then, in much harder fighting, also started to hammer away at Couch's and Slocum's positions up on either side of the plank road. A rapid succession of events had thrust Jeb Stuart into command of Stonewall Jackson's corps. When Jackson was wounded, leadership had passed to A.P. Hill, but within minutes of taking command, Hill had been wounded in the legs by a shell fragment. He passed the baton to the next senior division commander, Robert Rhodes, but then Hill had second thoughts and sent for Jeb Stuart to take command. This was a highly unusual move, but probably the wisest course of action, given the extraordinary circumstances. Stuart was a cavalry officer, not an infantry commander, but Hill was more concerned that Stonewall Jackson be replaced in the midst of a battle by a man the troops knew and trusted. At Chancellorsville, Rhodes was leading a division in combat for the first time, and little known outside that formation while Stuart was widely admired throughout the army. All through the night of May 2nd, Stuart tirelessly reorganized the 2nd Corps' lines to prepare for an attack west of Chancellorsville come morning. And after he launched his assault, Stuart was everywhere that morning, seeing and being seen, leading troops forward and rallying them when they fell back. His tactics weren't subtle. As Confederate artillerist Porter Alexander said, Jeb Stewart that morning, quote, never seemed to hesitate or to doubt for one moment that he could just crash his way wherever he chose to strike. The battle was touch and go during the morning hours as the Federals west of Chancellorsville aggressively defended their lines. But under the circumstances, it's hard to imagine how Jeb Stewart, in a new command, a cavalryman leading large forces of infantry and artillery for the first time, could have done a better job. Porter Alexander believed credit was due, saying, quote, Altogether, I do not think there was a more brilliant thing done in the war than Stuart's extricating that command from the extremely critical position in which he found it. As we talked about last week, the fierce fighting west of Chancellorsville reached a climax when Ramser's North Carolina Brigade of Rhodes Division came up and finally achieved a breakthrough and punched through the Federal line, but in doing so lost more than half its strength. 
Meanwhile, to the southeast, Robert E. Lee, acting in the role of a corps commander, ordered the divisions of Anderson and McClaws to begin attacking. This put pressure on the Federal position at Fairview from a new direction, making that spot even more difficult for the Yankees to maintain. That, then, was the situation when, shortly after 9 o'clock, Joe Hooker was knocked senseless when that Confederate shell came hurtling in from Hazel Grove and struck the porch of the Chancellor House. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Witnesses thought Hooker was dead. He was knocked unconscious, and even after he revived, he was insensible. At one point, he tried to mount his horse so he could show his troops he was okay, but the attempt made him sick. Hooker's doctor convinced him to lie down on a blanket, and eventually Hooker was taken to a spot in the rear, near the Bullock Farm. A few minutes after he left, a Confederate shell struck the blanket Hooker had been lying on. Hooker was obviously suffering from a severe concussion after being struck violently on the head by a portion of the pillar that was hit by the Confederate shell. A member of the general staff wrote of how, quote, For the remainder of the day he was wandering and was unable to get any ideas into his head. Another officer said, quote, His mind was not clear and they had to wake him up to communicate with him. Despite his injury, Hooker refused to turn over command to Darius Couch, commander of the Second Corps, who, by virtue of seniority, was the stricken general's second-in-command. And so, for nearly an hour, 
as the tide shifted decisively against the Federals, as Jeb Stuart and Robert E. Lee reunited their forces and attacked all along the line, as Union artillery withdrew from Fairview because they'd run out of ammunition. During those critical moments, the Union forces at Chancellorsville suffered from a lack of leadership. As the Federal position at Fairview collapsed, Porter Alexander moved several of his artillery pieces forward from Hazel Grove to take up position where the Yankee guns had been just moments earlier. Porter later wrote, We deployed on the plateau and opened on the fugitives, infantry, artillery, wagons, everything, swarming about the Chancellorsville house and down the broad road leading toward the river. During the barrage, the Chancellor house caught fire. Members of the Chancellor family and several neighbors, all huddled in the basement, were told by a member of Hooker's staff that they had to flee. Winfield Scott Hancock directed Captain Thomas Henry of the 140th Pennsylvania to assist in the evacuation of the house. Henry directed men from his company into the east wing of the house, where they evacuated 33 wounded soldiers and three women. According to Henry, the three women came out with him, one on each arm, with a third being towed by his coattails. Others bolted from the house and found themselves caught up in the swirl of battle. One of the refugees later recalled that, quote, The woods around the house were a sheet of fire, the air filled with shot and shell. Horses were running, rearing, and screaming, the men a mass of confusion, moaning, cursing, and praying. Colonel Joseph Dickinson of Hooker's staff took the Chancellor women and children up the road that led to the Bullock Farm and then beyond to U.S. Ford, where a chaplain escorted them across the Rappahannock. Along the way, Dickinson was confronted about escorting Southern civilians away from the fighting, but he told one officer who challenged him, If here is not the post of duty, looking after the safety of these helpless women and children, then I don't know what you call duty. Fourteen-year-old Sue Chancellor, who wrote her account of the battle 72 years later in 1935, would forever remember the last look she had of her, quote, old home, completely enveloped in flames. Sue admitted that, quote, The years have dimmed my memory as to incidents and occurrences, yet the horrible impression of those days of agony and conflict is still vivid, and I can close my eyes and see again the blazing woods, the house in flames, the flying shot and shell, and the terror-stricken women and children pushing their way over the dead and wounded, led by the courageous and chivalrous Colonel Dickinson. Union Artillery Commander Captain Claremont Best could no longer contend with the converging fire of Confederate batteries at Hazel Grove and along the Turnpike. His losses had been heavy. Two battery commanders had been killed. Sixty-three artillerymen had been struck down. Eighty battery horses lost. On top of that, Best had depleted his ammunition and begged headquarters for more. Hooker, his brain befuddled, responded by saying, quote, I can't make ammunition. 
Best ordered the Yankee gunners to evacuate Fairview and fall back beyond the Chancellorsville intersection to Hooker's last line. Only a handful of federal batteries continued to blast away at the relentlessly advancing rebels from the yard and orchard of the Chancellor House. As Confederates assailed the crossroads from the east, the south, and from the west, Winfield Scott Hancock commanded the Union rear guard as the rest of the federal defenders tried to extract themselves from the calamity that had befallen them. The Federals fought stubbornly even as they fell back north of Chancellorsville to a new line closer to U.S. Ford and the Rappahannock. The new Union line was anchored by Meade's V Corps and Reynolds' I Corps. Meade had urged Hooker to let him wade into the fray with the two corps, nearly 30,000 men in all, but Hooker had recovered enough of his senses to focus on just one overriding concern, and that was the withdrawal into a new line and the safety of his forces, so he held Meade back. On the Confederate side, confusion reigned as shot-up rebel units, fragments of divisions, brigades, and regiments converged on the Chancellorsville intersection from three directions, even as the last Federals vanished from the clearing. Gun smoke from the battle and wood smoke from small forest fires mixed with yet more smoke from the Chancellor House, which was now completely engulfed in flames. Into this scene rode Robert E. Lee on Traveler. He came down from Hazel Grove, and at first he stuck close to the edge of the field, angling to find any units still capable of pressing northward after the retreating Yankees. But seeing Lee, Confederate soldiers wanted to celebrate what they had just accomplished, so they started to cheer the architect of their victory. More and more joined in the chorus of shouted praise as Lee rode into the middle of the Chancellorsville clearing. One of Lee's staff officers, Major Charles Marshall, captured the very essence of the moment when he wrote, His presence was the signal for one of those uncontrollable outbursts of enthusiasm which no one can appreciate who have not witnessed them. The fierce soldiers, with their faces blackened with the smoke of battle, the wounded crawling with feeble limbs from the fury of the devouring flames, all seemed possessed with a common impulse. One long unbroken cheer rose high above the roar of battle. Lee sat in the full realization of all that soldiers dream of, triumph. And as I looked upon him in the complete fruition of the success which his genius, courage, and confidence in his army had won, I thought it must have been from such a scene that men in ancient days ascended to the dignity of gods. But Robert E. Lee refused to rest on his laurels. He had the Federals on the run, and he sensed an opportunity to turn Chancellorsville into a more decisive victory. And so Lee prodded his division commanders with instructions to restore order and prepare to carry the attack north against Hooker's last line. Jeb Stewart galloped up and down the lines, waving his hat and shouting, Go forward, boys. We have them running, and we'll keep them at it. However, the Confederate pursuit and attack never materialized. 
A courier interrupted the celebration taking place around the Chancellorsville intersection to report a new and dangerous threat to Lee's forces. Sedgwick's Federals had overrun Jubal Early's defenses at Fredericksburg that morning and were marching up the direct road to Chancellorsville toward Lee's rear. With the next episode, our focus will shift to the fighting that took place east of Chancellorsville at Fredericksburg and at Salem Church. But before we move on to that part of the battle, we wanted to point out how the fighting here had changed between May 2nd and May 3rd. May 2nd was a general's battle, as Stonewall Jackson maneuvered to gain an advantage over the Federals, then launched his flank attack. May 3rd, however, was a soldier's battle. On May 3rd, the Confederates had run out of maneuver room, and so the fighting that day became a savage slugging match of charge and countercharge. Forest fires erupted all across the battlefield, adding a special horror to the combat in the wilderness, as many of the wounded perished because they couldn't get out of the way of the flames. A South Carolinian remembered seeing, quote, charred bodies hugging the trees or with hands outstretched as if to ward off the flames. Another Confederate said, I saw many men with every remnant of clothing burn off, presenting the most sickening appearance imaginable. Although the fight for Fairview and Chancellorsville on May 3rd was a Confederate triumph, and Lee had succeeded in reuniting his forces and stewards, it was an accomplishment that the men of the Federal 2nd, 3rd, and 12th Corps made the rebels pay an extremely high price for. Just five hours of brutal combat that morning cost the Confederates 8,960 dead, wounded, and missing. Only at Antietam had Lee lost more men, and there the struggle had lasted all day. Four out of every five of the morning's casualties were from Jeb Stewart's command. A.P. Hill's and Rhodes' divisions lost 24% of their numbers. Colston's loss was 29%. The toll of officers was staggering. Seven of Stewart's brigade commanders were hit, three of them killed or mortally wounded. In Stewart's command and Lee's, no fewer than 40 regimental commanders or their battlefield replacements were casualties. Eleven of the 40 were killed or mortally wounded. At battle's end, captains and lieutenants were leading regiments. As for the Federals, their aggressive defense of Chancellorsville on May 3rd cost them 8,620 casualties, only about 340 less than their foes. In the awful arithmetic that must be taken into account, though, the Federals could afford to pay such a butcher's bill and still remain a formidable fighting force, while the Confederates could not. Lee simply couldn't sustain such terrific losses for long. At Chancellorsville, the combined casualties of the two armies on May 3rd were almost 17,600 men. For the majority of soldiers in blue and butternut in the ranks that Sabbath morning, the fighting at Chancellorsville was the most intense, most furiously fought engagement they had ever experienced. Yes, Robert E. Lee, against all odds, had won a tactical victory, but the cost of that victory had been exceedingly high. 
and there still remained a fair share of twists and turns to be played out before the Chancellorsville campaign came to its final end. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War by Aaron Sheehan Dean. This book obviously doesn't have anything to do specifically with the Battle of Chancellorsville, but it's a book that we've just recently picked up and we're impressed with it. So we're making it this episode's book recommendation. Uh, Sheehan Dean shows that Terrible and bloody as the Civil War was, it actually could have been much worse. And that's all that we'll say about that. Uh, check the book out for yourself. Don't forget you can always find a list of all our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we bring this show to a close, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. This past week, Ural, Melissa, Steve, and Matt joined the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade. And then we want to thank Mindy for her donation, which was in honor of Abraham Lincoln's 210th birthday. Thanks, Mindy. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.